You're listening to Comedy Central. I went as a, did you dress for anything? I dressed up as The Weeknd. Yeah, and apparently I looked so much like him, some people thought I was The Weeknd in the streets, which made no sense to me. Because why would The Weeknd go as The Weeknd for Halloween? Literally someone in the street was like, The Weeknd, you're The Weeknd, you're The Weeknd. Then I was like, no, I'm a guy dressed as The Weeknd. She's like, I know The Weeknd when I see him. Then I was like, why would The Weeknd dress as The Weeknd for Halloween? What sense does any of, this is Halloween. This is the day when nobody is the person who you think they are. It's the week, come just take a picture. She's like, don't be an asshole, Abel. I was like, I'm not, I'm not him. I'm not him. Then she's like, just take a picture. Then I was like, screw you. Yeah, the weekend says screw you, idiot. That's right, and don't forget to buy my album. Coming to you from the heart of Times Square in New York City, the only city in America. It's The Daily Show, ears edition. Tonight, Biden's European vacation. Horror films are racist. And Representative Dan Crenshaw. This is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to The Daily Show. I'm Trevor Noah. And joining me for today's headlines is my good friend, Michael Costa. What's going on, Michael Costa? How you doing, man? Did you have a good Halloween? I had a great Halloween. Yeah? You know, and and I'm, I'm more proud of the fact that I haven't seen a white person post a culturally insensitive costume. And it makes me think, maybe we learned. Yeah. Maybe we learned not to post. But maybe, <laughs> maybe Ted Lasso was scooping up a lot of the white people costumes. I saw a lot of them. You know, so I saw a lot of them too. And it, it makes me thinking, maybe we need more TV shows with a white male charismatic lead. You know what, my man? I hear what you're saying. Yeah, we need sad. more white men represented on television so that people have more white men to look up to. Look, you said it. The other thing I love about Halloween, it just feels like there's no rules. You know, you can walk around your neighborhood drunk, drinking. You see a cop, they never say anything. You don't even know if that is a cop. Maybe that's someone <laughs> dressed as a cop. Even if they say something to you, you can say, my costume is that I'm publicly intoxicated. <laughs> and you're, free. you're good. Good oh, to see you, man. buddy. Yeah, I just, gotta, I just gotta commit more crimes on Halloween. You just made me realize this. There's no rules, dude. Yeah, all yeah. right. Yeah. Next, next Halloween, me and you, yes. we're doing this together. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into the big story that's happening today. It's all about Joe Biden, president of the United States and professional malarkey hunter. There are lots of cool perks to being president, right? You get a, a giant house with a bowling alley and a personal chef. You get that free painting of yourself. And best of all, you get to travel the world for free. And right now, Joe Biden is on one of the biggest trips of his presidency so far. So let's find out how it's all going in another installment of Grandpa's Day Out. President Biden's first stop on his European tour was the Vatican City, the place TripAdvisor rated best city to feel guilty for masturbating in. And while Biden was there, he had a very special meeting with a fellow Catholic. For President Biden, a day of devotion and diplomacy. America's second ever Roman Catholic president having a private audience with Pope Francis, with whom he's built a personal bond, giving him a ceremonial commander coin and a compliment. You are the most significant warrior for peace I've ever met. And with your permission, I'd like to be able to give you a coin. Now, the tradition is, and I'm only kidding about this, if next time I see you, you don't have it, you have to buy the drinks. Now, I'm, I'm the only Irishman you've ever met who's never had a drink. <laughs> I know that. 
So uh, obviously a very personal moment with a lighthearted one, as is uh, typical with Joe Biden, who ended that meeting today by saying to the Pope, God love you. You know, you got to give it to Joe Biden because it took everything in his power as an old man to not make that coin appear behind the Pope's ear. <laughs> but what's this, Popey? Ah, here's a coin, kid. I'll see you next time. Yeah. Also, the fact that he said, God love you to the Pope, that is the most unnecessary God love you in history. You don't need to say, God love you to the Pope. He knows God loves him. He had dinner with him last night. But I do think that meeting was cool to see because it's, it's nice that even though these two men are some of the most powerful leaders in the world, when it comes down to it, they're just a couple of old guys hanging out, showing off their coin collection, talking about alcohol, making inappropriate ethnic jokes. I mean, forget the Vatican. These two should have been meeting in a sauna. You know? And it's adorable how the Pope acts so happy to receive that coin. You see him, you know, his house is filled with Indiana Jones wish list. He doesn't need to be happy about a coin, you know? Oh, wow, a coin from the White House. I'll keep it right next to the actual Holy Grail. Uh, throw this shit out, Vincenzo. Uh, Stoccazzo not giving me the coin, eh? Uh, are you gonna give me a coin? I said, the Pope, or this is a Stoccazzo little in the White House. If I'm well, you see, I'm, I, you, it seems like I speak bad Italian, but actually the no. Pope is actually from Argentina. He speaks Spanish. So I'm actually doing a very good uh, Pope impression because okay. I'm saying his Italian's not great. That's, okay. that's what that is. I'm going to be honest, Costa. I think this is a good look for Biden because, I mean, he's Catholic and the Pope likes him. This is a good thing, right? I think it's a bad thing. I think it's a bad sign if you're trying to negotiate an infrastructure bill in the United States and in the middle of negotiations, you got to run and talk to the Pope. Hey, Pope, uh, confession, we're screwed. <laughs> Isn't it great that they just get called the Pope? That's your new name when you become the Pope. The Pope. His name is Francis. Everyone calls him the Pope. It's like when you work at Denny's, the very first day you show up and the only name tag they have is Josh. You're now Josh. I thought that guy was Josh. Yeah, exactly. Everyone thinks it's Josh. Also, you know there's another former Pope out there. Pope Benedict? He's just around. He's hanging. He's like the Jay Leno now <laughs> of Pope. He's just fixing cars in Germany. <laughs> He was, a, he, he was a pope, and he's not a pope. I'm just saying, no one ever talks about Benedict. Former, former pope? Former pope. Pope, 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 previous pope? Previous pope. <laughs> All right, now, after President Biden exchanged Irish jokes with the pope, he caught an Uber to Rome for the G20 <laughs> summit, where he and other world leaders got down to business. And they got, they got some, st some things done. You know, like um, they, they, they agreed to create a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15%, which is expected to raise hundreds of billions of dollars until the corporations find a different loophole about five minutes afterwards. But when it came to another priority for the G20, tackling climate change, things weren't as successful. Even the first major in-person meeting in two years couldn't bring world leaders closer together on the issue of climate change. In the final communique, G20 leaders agreed to softer language on reaching net zero emissions, setting a target of, quote, by or around mid-century. Canada's pledge is to be carbon neutral by 2050, and coal was also contentious. G20 leaders did agree to end public financing of coal-fired power generation abroad, but there are no targets to phase out coal domestically. Damn, G20, now that is a flex. Do you hear what they said there? Basically, these leaders were like, no more coal for anyone except us. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to go home and give a Pfizer booster to my pets. I'm sorry, guys, but how is climate change the most pressing issue facing humanity, but then your plan is to do something about it by more or less 2050? 
like that's a pretty good sign that something isn't actually gonna get done. If somebody says to you, yeah, yeah, we should hang out sometime. What's your schedule looking like in 2050? You're never seeing that person again. I don't care if they're your dad, you're never seeing them. Not to mention, I'm looking at the people making this pledge. Half of them aren't even gonna be around in 2050. That's genius. When are we fixing this? Ah, how much time do I have left? Yeah, yeah, around then. I mean, the bigger problem is that these steps that the countries have announced that they're gonna take, they won't actually reduce carbon emissions enough to reach the goals. So basically what they've done is said, I wanna lose 100 pounds by the summer. So I'm gonna do five push-ups a day. And then I don't know, maybe I'll get tapeworm. We'll, we'll see what happens, you know? It's frustrating, Costa. The thing, you can't say you wanna do something about yeah. it and then be like, well, in 30 years, we'll do something in 30 years. I can solve climate change in 10 minutes. You ready? Okay. okay. Here's that, well, they could solve it in 10 minutes. Stop having the conference in a fancy room in Glasgow and put the G20 summit inside of a California wildfire, okay? They'll, they got t two minutes, let's wrap this thing up. Location. They don't feel the consequences when they're in an air-conditioned room in Glasgow. The I like this. Uh, location. location is everything. Location, location, location. Yes. I'm the first person to ever say that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Joe Biden wrapped up Grandpa's Day Out by attending the COP26 climate conference in Scotland a.k.a. England's fancy church hat. And although COP26 sounds like a Bruce Willis movie that never actually got made, it's actually the most important annual climate change conference in the world. Although that doesn't mean that it's the most exciting conference in the world. I call on you to commit to concrete actions to stop the destruction of this magnificent planet. This conference is one of the most important meetings in history. You have the chance to make decisions and reach agreements which will affect the lives of generations to come. This is my message from Earth to COP. On behalf of We the 15, I ask you, please help us to guarantee a safer future for every life. Please welcome Prime Minister of Italy, Mario Draghi. I don't know what's worse. The fact that he clapped for a speech that he didn't hear, or the fact that he fell asleep when the guy was like, this is the most important thing <sighs> facing humanity <sighs> of all time. And, and look, look, look. I know that the haters are gonna say that Biden was falling asleep during the climate conference, but think about it. How are we gonna save the climate? Not using energy, that's how. What's the one time you're not using as much energy? When you're sleeping. So Joe Biden was just doing his part, yo. That's what he was doing. And by the way, I don't know exactly how the chain of command works, but when he dozed off for five seconds, I think technically that means Kamala Harris was president at that time, right? First woman president, America, you did it, baby! You did it! You see what I did there, Costa? It's a joke about Costa! Michael! Shoot them, Lindsey Graham, use the guns, use the guns! That's not what I was talking about. I know. This guy. You know, if you ask me, the real hero of this whole thing was the aide who came in and woke Biden up. Cause that was, that was slick, man. That dude should get a coin. If it wasn't for him, Biden might still be sleeping there now. Yeah, he'll just wake up next week in the middle of like a furry convention. Oh, I, I don't know if I could rub one out to a squirrel, but God love you guys. So kudos to that aide who woke Biden up. I mean, people, people may not actually know this, but he's actually part of a new branch of the federal government and they're on the lookout for recruits. When the world's most powerful man needs a power nap at the worst possible time. And the line between consciousness and chaos is as thin as an eyelid. 
That's when we spring into action. The few, the swift, the United States Sleeper Service. Join our team and you'll learn how to take charge when the president takes a nap. Eagle is dozing. Repeat, Eagle is dozing. We're entering rapid eye movement. God damn it, get those eyes open. He's about to snore. So if you're ready to throw yourself into the line of tired, join the United States Sleeper Service. Suck it, Space Force. All right, when we come back, Roy Wood Jr. will tell us what makes black people so scary. You don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Show. Now, as you know, Halloween was last weekend, and to help commemorate it in our own way, we turn to Roy Wood Jr. for another episode of CP Time. Trash, trash. It's no almond joys. Ah, well, hello there. Welcome to CP Time, the only show that's for the culture. Today, we'll be discussing black horror movies. When you think of black horror, you think of hits like Get Out or this year's remake of Candyman, which reminds me, speaking of, speaking of that, Candyman, 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 Candyman. I knew he wouldn't show up. Cheap bastard owed me $50. But we wouldn't have Jordan Peele if it weren't for the pioneering black horror films that today are mostly forgotten. Movies like Son of Ngagi, which in 1940 became the first horror film to feature an all-black cast. And unlike a Medea Halloween, they were all played by different people. Son of Ngagi bucked stereotypes by showing a black middle-class family battling a monster in their home, paving the way for the Winslow family to do the same thing against Steve Urkel. Whew, those suspenders. And on top of that, the scientist in this movie is an old black woman. It was like a scary Hidden Figures. Although I have to be honest, I found Hidden Figures to be pretty scary too. All that damn math. Another major film in black horror was 1968's Night of the Living Dead, starring Dwayne Jones, the first black actor to play the lead role in a mainstream horror hit. He's a hero for most of the movie, and then his character ends up getting shot by white folks who mistake him for a zombie. It was a profound lesson on racism. It is the living who are racist, and we should all strive to be more like the zombies who will eat the brains of any race. Wait, is that the lesson? Once the 1970s hit and black exploitation films got big, horror movies got a little bit wild. We had movies like Blackula, Blackenstein, Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, and of course, Abby. It was originally titled The Black Sorcist, but they got in trouble for copying that movie with a little white girl tinkles on the living room carpet. Then there was Petey Wheatstraw. In 1977, Dolomite star Rudy Ray Moore plays a comedian who is killed by his rivals for being too successful. Today they would have just found his old tweets. That's how you get written. Anyway, the comedian makes a deal with the devil to come back to life and get revenge on his killers by using the devil's magic pimp cane. Now, the first question is, why would the devil have a pimp cane? I do not know. If I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't even know why pimps have pimp canes. Does pimping cause sprained ankles? 
Is that why pimping ain't easy? I don't know. This movie raised many questions for me. And finally, one black horror character that doesn't get the credit she deserves was Rachel True's performance as Rochelle in the 1996 movie, The Craft. Now, although The Craft is not technically a black horror movie, the soundtrack does include a song by Jewel, and there's few things more terrifying to black people than that. Whew, Jewel. But Rochelle, Rochelle was a groundbreaking character for black women in horror. She takes revenge on a racist bully at school after becoming a powerful witch, which is literally black girl magic. And this character was especially important because it was the 1990s. Teen horror was in the midst of a renaissance, but black girls didn't really get to see themselves in anything scary. All they had was scary spice. She wasn't even that scary. Posh was the scary one. Always looked like she just got back from poisoning James Bond. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'm Roy Wood Jr. And this has been CP Time. And remember, before the culture, we'll try this again. Candyman. Oh, there you are. Where's my money, Daniel? Thank you so much for that, Roy. All right, when we come back, Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw will be joining me right here in the studio. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is Dan Crenshaw, Republican congressman from Texas and author of Fortitude. He's here to talk about immigration and border policy, climate change, and cancel culture. Representative Crenshaw, welcome to the show. Trevor, thanks for, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. You, I think you, you might be the first Republican lawmaker we've had on in maybe, or let me say the first Republican lawmaker we've had on who isn't leaving <laughs> Congress in maybe like over a year. So thank you very All much right. for being here. Wow, that's exciting. Um, I was reading up on you, and there are a few things I never knew about you as a person. Um, one, 37. We're both 37 years it's old. It's a good age. Uh, it's a good age, yeah. Um, we've both lived in multiple countries around the world. Mm -hmm. and, and when I read, like, your, your life story, living in, I think it was Ecuador and Colombia, I, I, I couldn't help wondering. I was like, I wonder what ideas you have of America that you think have been shaped by living in other places. Because I know I have that. Yeah. You know, whereas there are some people who've only lived in America and they see America in a certain way. What is like something that you think has shaped your views on America because you've lived in other countries? Well, living in other countries, it, it's, it's fun. I, I love my upbringing. I plan to go back to my 20 year high school reunion in Colombia next year. And uh, it, it, it shaped me in a lot of positive ways, I think. Um, how does it view, make my view of America different? Um, it certainly makes you appreciate America mm -hmm. in many ways. Helps you understand how other people think about the United States. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Because you know, I, I was I was the only American in my entire grade in, in, throughout high school. Right. So I, was, I spent all four years of high school in Bogota. Uh -huh. I was the only American that was there all four years. So uh, <laughs> I got a lot of questions as a result, and I had to I had to defend my country uh, as a result in, in ways that I well, frankly wasn't prepared for. So right. that, that shaped my view. What I like about America, and I think what we should embrace as Americans, is this idea that. People can become America, uh -huh. American. Uh, you can't become French. Right. Right? You, right. you can't, you, I'm, I'm not even sure you can really become German. Right. Uh, but you can become an American because the, the whole point of being an American is that we sort of share this, this set of ideals, this set of history, um, this, this creed, if you will, of Americanism, of Western values that 
makes us an American, and, and I think that's a very cool thing. Yeah, it's an interesting idea because it, America in itself is an experiment. You know, um, it's not something that's never been repeated anywhere else in the world. I've always been fascinated by it as a as a, as a concept. Um, w when I was reading through your story, though, I, it made me wonder. I was like, man, this man probably has interesting and nuanced views on immigration that are shaped by ideas that aren't just formed in America. You know, as somebody who's fluent in Spanish, as somebody who's lived in Colombia, you, as you said, you're gonna go back to your 20-year reunion, you have friends, you, you, you have people you would consider even almost family on, mm -hmm. on that side of the world. Let's, let's talk a little bit about immigration because it feels like America is stuck in its immigration conversation, you know? There is a misconception about what the, the, the problems are, what causes the problems, how America can move forward. As somebody who's lived in other countries, some of them which influence America's immigration story. What do you think the problem is? And then maybe afterwards we'll talk about potential solutions going forward. Well, look, I, I view the problem as illegal immigration. I'm, mm -hmm. not, I'm not sure we have a problem with legal immigration. It depends on who you ask, of course. I personally don't have a problem with legal immigration. Uh, my stepmom is a legal immigrant, immigrant mm -hmm. uh, immigrated from Peru. So, you know, I, I think most Americans are not anti-immigrant. Right. I, I, I don't think we should paint them that way. But I think the vast majority of Americans want our border security. You know, and, that, and that's the crux of the debate that's going on right now. And we have to differentiate between this conversation about Ill illegal immigration mm -hmm. and legal immigration. So, wait, okay, so... Uh, so what's I, the problem with no, illegal no, no, immigration? No, 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 no. Let, let's talk about the, the conversation in and around yeah. that. This is what it feels like to me. Every few years in America, the conversation around the border changes, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, when, when Trump was in, in office, people were like, oh yeah, he's shutting down the border, he's locking down the border, he's closing right. down the border, he's building a border wall. And when Biden's in power, people are like, the borders are wide open, the border. it seems like the rhetoric switches wildly. Now, yeah. America has its spikes up and down, people coming in, people don't, people come in, people don't. But like, you've, you've said this, and, and that's something that I, that I appreciate, you've said we shouldn't be using extreme rhetoric to talk about these problems. Yeah. Like, do you think the border's wide open? Uh, it, it would seem that way effectively. So you, you've had 1.5 million encounters on the border this uh -huh. year. That's, a, that's an absolute record. Uh, out of that, hundreds of thousands have been released into the interior. So right. this catch and release idea that uh -huh. we keep hearing about, it is effectively true. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, there's an incentive structure that incentivizes people to bring minors across right. because our courts can't deal with that. I, I could go into a long history of why that is if you'd like me to, but it gets wonky. Um, but the point is, is that's the, that's the nature of the problem right now. It's mm -hmm. existed since about 2014. That's why you see these waves. And so there's certain policies that can prevent that incentive structure. You can keep people in Mexico while they, while they claim their asylum claim. Mm -hmm. You can have people claim asylum within their home countries. That right, was right, part right. of the asylum cooperation agreements we established with the Northern Triangle countries. So what Biden did is reverse all of these policies. Right. And that's why you're seeing this incentive structure change so radically because people have this idea that they can come across the border and they will get a bus ticket to wherever they want and maybe they show up for the court date, maybe they don't. Do you think people keep abreast with America's laws in that way? Or do you think like, so for instance, with the Haitian immigrants, you had immigrants saying they we heard that Biden would let us in. And I mean, that's not what Biden said. Do you get what I'm saying? So, mm -hmm. so is, is there some sort of misinformation that's also going out there? Or do you think people are just hearing this, this overwhelming rhetoric that the borders are wide? Like, sometimes I wonder if people saying the borders are wide open is what yeah. people might be hearing. And then they go like, oh, well, then we should go to America because they said the borders are wide open. Well, I, I, I don't think these immigrants are watching Fox News and they don't, they don't follow <laughs> me on Instagram. So I, 
I, you never know. <laughs> news travels. You never know. <laughs> news travels, but, but that is the point, actually. And it, it travels mostly on social media and through their networks. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's also promulgated by the drug cartels. So the biggest winner in all of this is the North, the, the North Mexico drug cartels. Right, right, right. They, they get maybe $300 to $500 per person to get somebody across the border. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets through that border without them. They have the best border security in the world. Um, so they make millions. And by the way, that's risk-free money, too. They don't have to be trafficking drugs anymore. Mm -hmm. You can get caught trafficking drugs. Here, they're just staying on the Mexican side and they're Sending the people making across. people go over. Right. So there's a lot of human trafficking that occurs there, too. So uh, none of this is, is good <laughs> in, in any way. And, and I fail to see how it's compassionate to promulgate those, those open border policies when you can disincentivize it and reduce that kind of human trafficking and reduce the money, the, the money flowing to these drug cartels. Right, right, right. It's interesting because, uh, you know, it's not a uniquely American problem. And, and maybe that's, that's something that I've, I've, I've always struggled with in seeing these conversations. Any country that shares a border with a nation that is going through turmoil in some way, shape, or form is mm -hmm. going to experience some sort of influx. That, that is natural, especially one, when one country is, is doing much better when it comes to its finances. So when you look at the coming in, when you look at DACA, when you look at these, these programs, one, what do you do about the people who are already here, who've been here, who've spent their whole lives here, who've grown up here as children? Mm -hmm. Do you think America at some point has to say, look, the people are here, it'll cost us a fortune to get them out, and for all intents and purposes, as you said, they've become American. Yeah, so Republicans have been, have, have been pretty willing to have conversation about DACA. All mm -hmm. we asked is that you secure the border. Now, DACA, as defined by the Obama administration, see, that's very different than how they've started to define it now. And it's important that people distinguish these two definitions because what Democrats have done in the last two years multiple times has passed the DREAMer Act, which would completely change the definition of DACA recipients to basically mean your age doesn't matter, when you came doesn't matter, which effectively means everyone. I understand. Okay, so, so, so you're arguing we, the way Obama yeah. and his administration... I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to somebody who doesn't even speak Spanish, uh, who was right. brought here as a child and giving them some kind of, of legal security. Very, I'm very sympathetic to that. But when it comes to broader immigration reforms, okay, what do you do? What do you do with the millions of people here? It's a very good question. The first thing you do is you have to stop the inflow. You have to stop the illegal crossings. I hope we, I, I want to get to this point in America where we all agree that we should have zero tolerance for illegal immigration, primarily because it cuts in front of the line of legal immigrants who want to do this the right way. Mm -hmm. This is very, uh, I'm from Houston. It's the most diverse city in America. I don't think a lot of people know that about Houston. Um, we talk to illegal immigrants all the time. They're very frustrated by this. Again, my stepmother is a legal immigrant. Because they're they feel like people are cutting they the line. They feel like people are cutting yeah. the line. They feel an injustice is incurring against them, and I think they're right. Um, just because there's a long line doesn't mean you get to cut it. And by the way, there will always be a long line. For this country, there will always be a massive line. If you doubled the number of legal immigrants we have next year, tripled it, quadrupled it, there'd still be a massive line. But, but America's not, not doing that. That, that's, no, we're not. That's one of the things I've been, I've been, I've been intrigued by is, um, you know, when you talk to some of the architects of America's original immigration policy, they have said that America hasn't done a good job of adjusting those numbers of who comes in and how. Yeah. And, I mean, we see this in businesses. We see this with farming. We see, you see them and, saying, and farmers saying... there's an honest saying, debate to be had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People say, like, yep. we don't have the workers. We need... Any yep. country needs a steady flow of immigration. It feels like on that side, America hasn't done a particularly good job of updating how many people it actually needs to come in. Fair. And, and I think we can debate which way those numbers should right, go. Right, Maybe right. it should depend on unemployment numbers uh, here in this country. Maybe it should depend on a number of factors. Mm -hmm. We want to have those conversations. Because like, right then we're talking about changing things on the margin right, for legal immigration. Right. I think those are worthy debates to have. Let's talk a little bit about some of the books you've written. Um, you know, you, 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 you speak your mind. You are, I think, 
uh, a Republican who presents themselves as somebody who's willing to have discourse with people. I mean, you're here with me, you know? You, you've always said people need to avoid extreme rhetoric. And in, in some of your books, you know, I, I, I'll paraphrase, and forgive me if I, if I don't phrase it correctly, but one of the lines that stuck out to me is you said, um, you know, we have to be careful not to offend people. We shouldn't try to go out of our way to offend people as human beings. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we can also develop a lot of strength by mm -hmm. not being offended right. by everything. In and around the culture of what people want to call cancel culture, mm -hmm. you know, people go woke this and woke that and cancel culture. It seems like you're commenting on this, but I'd love to know what your opinion of cancel culture is. First of all, do you, do you think that it's yeah. a real thing? And second of all, what do you think it actually means? It means a couple of different things. So cancel culture in modern times, um, it can mean it can mean refusing to forgive someone for what was clearly a mistake. Okay. Okay. And, and I think in my story of cancel culture going on SNL, that's sort of what that was, right? Because there's a world where what Pete Davidson said, he didn't quite mean it. Right. He didn't quite right. mean it as badly as people in, might have interpreted it as. Now, if they did mean it, it's, it's a different story, okay? Right. And, I, and I have to deal with that. But when somebody takes an old tweet uh, or, or whatever it is, and you see this constantly, um, we have to ask ourselves, is that fair? And is there really no forgiveness in our mm -hmm. society? Is there, no, mm -hmm. is, there, is there no redemption allowed in our society? So that's one aspect of cancel culture as I see it. Um, another aspect, which I think is what probably right-wingers like a lot less, is, is this making, making traditional and normal things taboo all of a sudden. So this gets, this gets into, okay, we need to cancel Aunt Jemima, right? We need to cancel Paw Patrol. These things that didn't offend anybody five mm -hmm, seconds mm -hmm. ago are now deeply offensive and need to be canceled. I think that's what drives people crazy. Right. But, but some of the things did offend people, and don't get me wrong, like Paw Patrol, and I think some of the things are... It can go too far. Yeah. I, no, no, no. I think, <laughs> I think there are a combination. Sometimes I think what happens is there are people online who just chime in. Yep. They're not really invested. They just chime in. Right. Then the algorithms online go like, oh, it's become a yeah, thing. And it wasn't really trending. a thing. Yeah, it's trending. Yeah. Then it becomes a thing. Then the media outlets jump on and they go like, they're trying to cancel. Then Fox will come from one side. They cancel. Then the MSNBC comes from the other side. But a lot of the time I find it's people who are just either criticizing. Sometimes they're just roasting something. Sometimes they're just making jokes and jumping on. I feel like, I feel like there's this weird attitude where now we have, we have lost our ability to separate canceling from criticism, from critique, yeah. from accountability even. Yes. Do you, know, do you, do you I, get I, what I'm I, saying? I, I do get what you're saying, and, um, and we do have to have that nuanced conversation. And that's why I try to define cancel culture the way I defined it. I did not define it as everybody jumping on somebody. Right, if right, you right. say something totally atrocious, maybe you deserve to be jumped on. Maybe oh, you deserve okay. to be piled on. Okay. You know, and we have, but, but, but did what, <laughs> is what you just said what everybody's been saying for years. Right. And was, it, was it really worth piling on you for this? And, and is it again, worth kicking you out the, of society forever? That's why I say it's the changing of taboos that, that really is what we're talking mm -hmm. about with cancel culture. And I totally agree with you. I think a lot of people like corporations, when they, cause, because I agree with you that a lot of times you see a bunch of people yelling online. To me and you, that doesn't mean much to us right. because we, we put it into perspective. We're used to large amounts of people. I say, oh, a thousand people said something really mean about me but it's only a thousand. <laughs> like, yes, right. You know, but some people are like, oh my God, that's the end of my life. Right, right, and, right. And, and, and a corporate CEO oftentimes too, well, we've got to pull that product because yes, a thousand right. angry people on Twitter said so. And, and I encourage them to stand their ground because you're always rewarded for not giving in to some of these silly cancel culture initiatives. It feels like for some people, Republicans are now trying to cancel books in schools. You know, Texas, I mean, your home state is now having this fight about 
critical race theory. You know, some schools who didn't even have critical race theory are fighting about critical race theory. People are confused about what it is or isn't. Yep. You know, people are saying we shouldn't teach certain things, some books should be kicked out. It's confusing because it doesn't seem like everybody has the same definition for what the argument is. I do know that you've been outspoken on this. From your perspective, mm -hmm. I would love to know what you think is going wrong in schools and, and why you think certain things should or shouldn't be taught. Or, or like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'd love to know from you yeah. directly. So let's take the Texas example. I'm not a state legislator, so I'm not, I can't speak in too much detail. But effectively, yes, they did ban CRT in schools. But what they also did is increase, um, it, it increase teaching about slavery, mm -hmm. increase teaching about Jim Crow laws. So, because a lot of people say, who, who support CRT say, look, we're just teaching history. And we say, no, that's not what CRT is. I think CRT is a misinterpretation of history and it leads to bad historical documents like the 1619 Project, which a bunch of historians had to go back and debunk. Right. Okay. So CRT is a narrative building. It's a theory. It's critical race theory. And it basically says that you should view institutions and society through the lens of race primarily. Um, or, or, or rather that, if I understand correctly, or rather that you should acknowledge that race played a major role in the definition of some of those structures, I think. And I think I can acknowledge that. Okay. What you just said, I can certainly, are there reverberations from past discrimination into modern society? Yes. We could have an honest conversation about that. But what, what critical race theory is often defined, not often, it always is defined this. Anytime I, I look into this and the writers of critical race theory, what really strikes me as odd about it, and I don't understand why the left defends it, because it seeks to challenge the liberal order. And it says this very clearly. It seeks to challenge um, uh, enlightenment rationality. It seeks to challenge uh, neutral justice, neutral application of mm -hmm, the law. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it goes from this, it goes from this um, Ta-Nehisi Coates ideology that, that in order to fix past discrimination, there must be current discrimination. Ooh, I, I do not. No, I don't know that he said that. Ta-Nehisi Coates? I don't believe that he's oh, ever Ibram said that. Ibram X. Kendi. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah, because Sorry. I... Ibram X. Kendi. I, 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 I still don't even know that. So, so, it did. But not talking I'm, about... That, that I'm 100% sure but of. But let, let's, let's talk about... So this is, this is the idea that I think is... Going back to the schools thing, rather, is... So you're saying you're not against them teaching slavery in schools? Of course not. I okay. learned about it ad nauseum right. as a kid. So now, when talking about that, or when talking about what Jim Crow was, you're not against them explaining that this was specifically tied to race? Of, of course not. Look, because you've made this argument many times, right? Redlining in the past might have, can affect how neighborhoods today are segregated. Yes, yes right. Uh, of course we can see the connection there. Um, I don't think there's more to the story than that, but we can learn about that. So do there's you think, nothing, do you think nothing... maybe then it's just a branding thing then? Well, I, like, I, is, I, is this like an Obamacare Affordable Care Act situation? <laughs> is that what we're dealing with here? No, I, I, I don't. Because, I mean, if you really look at the literature surrounding CRT, I think it's very toxic. And I think it does teach... I, I, I also think it's counterproductive. But there are schools, but I, schools that have had these fights and they don't have CRT. Literally, there are school boards where people are fighting about CRT and they have no CRT curriculum. Well, I mean, let's and look then at now what they're doing is they're getting rid of other books yeah. by like Toni Morrison. They're going like these and books that have been in the schools, ironically. Well, let's look like, at a recent example because there's all this fanfare going on and, and controversy going on in Virginia. We've uh -huh. got a governor's race coming up and this is at the crux of it, right? What's right. being yes. taught in schools. Yes. And so has CRT been promulgated at the school level? And the answer is yes. I mean, there was directives from this, this current administration mm -hmm. in Virginia that mm -hmm. says you will teach critical race theory. So it's absolutely infiltrating schools. Oftentimes, I think you're right that there's not a class in high school called critical race theory, mm -hmm. but it does infuse, the teachings of it do infuse something like diversity and inclusion training. Why would, who would be against diversity and inclusion training? 
But I would be against it if you're teaching white students that they're evil. When, when, when a child has to come home and say, Mom, am I, am I evil because I'm white? Or I a black student has saying. to say, no, 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 am I, I disempowered? Am I automatically uh, yeah, disempowered I, I and think, at a disadvantage yeah, because I, I'm black? That's bad. You're setting that black student up for, for, um, for basically to be imprisoned by this sense of despair for the rest of their life. And I don't see why you would start somebody's life off that way. This goes to a, a certain Republican ideology, and we'll, we'll, we'll move on after this, um, where I feel th th there's a difference, I feel, between telling somebody where they are or, or what, what, things they, what obstacles they may face mm -hmm. and victim mentality. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between the two because I don't think it is wrong to tell a black child, hey, we live in this neighborhood because of this. Your grandfather's house was taken away in right. Hermosa Beach or wherever, Manhattan Beach or wherever they lived. We had a business that we lost in this place. We, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, whatever these things are. I think it is valid to have those conversations the same way America has these conversations about the British and like this is how things came to be. Mm -hmm. The same way Jewish people will have conversations like, hey, your grandparents got kicked out of Poland. That's why we're here today. Right. And so... I don't think that that necessarily is creating a victim mentality. I think it's I think it's crucial to it say it doesn't have to. Right, but I think it doesn't have. I think to. the one can exist without the other. They, they can. You just have to be careful about it. And I think CRT uh, forces us forces that pendulum to swing rather far to the victimization mentality. Okay, I see what you're saying. But you're saying you're not against the conversations. It's just how the framing of the conversations. No, I, don't, I don't think the conversations are threatening. Let's talk a little bit before I let you go about um, COP. Yes. You're heading out to COP26. A lot of people will be surprised to hear this. They're going like, Dan Crenshaw, what are you doing at COP? This is a climate change meeting. Um, but you're one of the Republicans who said, no, we must have conversations about climate change and what we're going to do about it. You know, I know previously in 2018, I think it was on Facebook, you had this video where you said the science hasn't been settled, um, the temperatures haven't risen, and, you know, Hurricane Harvey, the, the effects can't be tied to climate change. I believe your views have evolved in, 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 in that time, and I'd love to know what your ideas are going forward about yeah. what you think America needs to do. I, I don't think I ever said any of those things in a video. On, on, on Facebook? No. Oh, I hope I'm wrong. I genuinely hope I, I'm I wrong. Have never, I would have never claimed that. Could be that, fake news. Genuine, that, and that I'm glad you hear them. haven't risen. So I, I've, I've always, this has always been my, my position. Okay. Um, is is look, climate change is real. Uh -huh. um, there's a, there's a, obviously a human element to that. Mm -hmm. And we need to take it seriously. Any, any, any science, any data that I, that I will cite in this conversation will be from the UN IPCC. Right, the, UN the gold climate, standard. The UN really. Climate yeah. Report. Um, what, what I point out uh, in, in many of these cases, and, and maybe what I was referring to in that video, is for something like Hurricane Harvey, there is no serious scientist that would attribute a single weather event to a trend. Right. right? It would be, that wouldn't be science. That would just be conjecture. Um, that's probably what I was referring to in, in this video that must have been from a very long time ago. Um, but I would never suggest that, that temperatures haven't necessarily risen. God, and, God, and of God. course they have. Um, and they'll continue to rise to an extent. Um, so it's a problem. There's going to be a cost associated with the problem. Uh, it's not quite what the alarmists say it is, and we can, we can quibble with that. But the real conversation has to be about what solutions we're actually in favor of. That's what everyone's fighting okay? about, yeah. And it seems to me that, look, if you're a Green New Dealer, you believe that the only solutions are solar and wind. You have to electrify the grid completely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's nonsense. Um, I'm not against solar and wind, but I don't think they should, relieve, they should receive 250 times more subsidies than nuclear energy, okay. which gives us reliable energy and it's carbon free. So there's smarter ways to do this. I don't think we should attack the oil and gas industry, especially in America. Why is that? Why do I say that? Well, because you've got to look at what worked. Okay, we've reduced emissions in this country more than the next 10 countries combined. We're back to 1992 levels. Why is that? Almost entirely because of gas, because of the fracking industry, um, because it displaced coal. 
Okay, it, it, it has about 50% the emissions of coal. Imagine doing the same thing via our exports and via trade deals with China and India. You know mm -hmm. China last year built three times more coal capacity than the rest of the world combined? Yeah, China hasn't been playing by the rules. I mean, they everyone knows this. They don't play by any rules. They right. play by their own rules. Well, they play by the rules that the Paris Climate Accord gave them, which is you can keep emitting until 2030. So if you're the Chinese, what are you going to do? I'm just going to keep building coal plants so that in 2030, well, yeah, I built a new 100 yeah, but, new coal but, plants, but, but now I can build 99 and uh, I can say I reduced America it. always been about what does America do? Like, the world follows America. It feels like America has an opportunity here to go, oh, China's slipping on this. We're going to take the mantle. We will be the leaders in creation of new energy. Now, please don't get me wrong. I think it is foolish for anyone to think this can happen overnight. Yeah. I think you have to transition. We've seen that you can't create enough energy from the sources that we talked about, wind, et cetera, solar. They haven't found ways to replicate that energy immediately overnight. I agree with you on this. But surely there are ways that now the gas and coal industries, especially the, the oil industries really, can, can, can really, I think, pull a little bit more of their weight. I mean, yeah, they themselves, cool. I think it was the, the oil and, um, what do they call You probably know their name better. So the, the industry of like, you know, all the oil companies have come together mm -hmm. and they said, hey, we are for paying what, what essentially amounts to a carbon tax. You yeah, know? Some, some of the big oil companies are, you gotta be careful with how we interpret what they're saying because what that does is displace a lot of the medium-sized oil companies. Who Interesting, can't deal with so you're saying yeah, they're, they're using that yeah, as a stick yeah, move. As, and, and if you're gonna have a carbon tax, it needs to be globalized. Like there should be a China carbon tax. I mean, if, if, if we're gonna talk wait, about a carbon tax. you can always wait for China though. Like that's, that, no, and honestly this is my only thing is like, like is America gonna wait for China to follow the rules before it just does the right thing? No, we don't have to wait. Again, what, what I mentioned a minute ago uh -huh. was the Chinese have an interest in reliable energy that's yes. cheaper. And that looks a lot like U.S. natural gas. And so in, in, in the last administration, we talked about this, getting China to buy $12 billion worth of natural gas. If you, let, me, let me give you a stat. If you displaced coal in China with natural gas right now, um, you'd have about a 50% reduction, which is about a 13 to 15% reduction globally in emissions. Talk about massive change without even harming anybody, economically speaking. Because what everybody's worried about, including, say, the president of Uganda, who wrote that scathing letter mm -hmm, and editorial mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal, they are not going to put off getting their people out of poverty just for the sake of, of this yes. obsession with solar and wind. So we can lead. I'm not saying we shouldn't lead, but we should lead with technological innovations, including our oil and gas companies. And they do a lot of this, by the way. Carbon capture is, uh, the carbon capture technology is growing radically. Exxon's looking, talking about a carbon hub in the Houston area. There's ways to, to not destroy our economy while also reducing emissions. And that's why I'm going to COP26, to promulgate that view. Before I let you go then, you, you have these conversations with your fellow Republicans. What it feels like to me right now, as somebody who just observes, is it feels like the Republican Party is in a, a really interesting watershed moment where I think it's, what, 46% or 43% of Republicans identify as Trumpers before Republicans. Mm. You know, it's, it, it now feels like the party is at a point where, you know, to use sporting analogies, we'd always complain about this back in there. We'd go like, players have forgotten that the badge is more important than the player, you know, and you're yeah. trying to do certain things. You have come under fire, for instance, just for saying to people, hey, Trump didn't lose because of some weird election fraud or whatever. You've come under fire for this. What do you think the future of the Republican Party will be? Do you think the Republican Party can avoid being co-opted by Trump? And if the answer is yes or no, what, what do you think the, the next moves need to be for Republicans to keep moving forward yeah. without being locked down in one person's ideology? 
Yeah, and, and I tell Republicans all the time, we, we can't be locked into one person. You know, we, we are a party that follows a set of ideals. What is conservatism? It's a problem-solving mechanism. That's what we're selling to the American people. We should talk about this more often, by the way. Conservatism is a mechanism by which we solve problems through a framework of limiting principles. Fundamentally, we should not get away from that. Limiting principles is a key part of that. And, and, and an adherence to Western liberal values is, an, is, is a key part of that. Um, I will say this, I, I do a ton of events. Uh, I, I've been doing a ton of events for the past year. And uh, these are Republican events, of mm -hmm, course. Mm -hmm. And the people who come to a Republican event tend to be the more primary voter activist crowd, right? Yeah. And I don't get questions about this. I always get questions about this from the media, always. I never, and I, and I, and I mean that in an absolute sense, I mean never, I never do I get this question about Trump from voters on the ground. So. I think polling has to be taken with a grain of salt. I think people are very, especially Republicans, are very, very uh, suspicious of pollsters, and they don't ever want to give in to you. So, so they'll, oh, they want to defend Trump because, but it doesn't mean they're obsessed with him. Oh, but they do, okay. but they feel the need to defend him, and so they'll tell that pollster, "Yeah, I'm a Trump." Well, it could explain why the polls are often wrong. They are often wrong. Yeah, yeah and, especially and, in and around Trump and Republicans. Right, because we. We have a very suspicious view of pollsters for whatever reason, and um, and so you have to take it with a grain of salt. Well, I could talk to you forever, but I know you have to go. You're catching a train back to D.C. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, this was fun. Thank you for chatting you with me, and uh, I hope to have you back on again. Good luck at uh, COP26. Thank you. Don't forget, people, the congressman's books are available at dancrenshaw.com, and you can check out his podcast, Hold These Truths. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go... Tomorrow is election day across America. So if you can, please get out and vote if you haven't already. Also, if you can, please consider supporting When We All Vote. It's a national nonpartisan initiative to change the culture around voting and to increase participation in each and every election by helping to close the race and age voting gap. Now, if you want to support their work, then donate at the link below. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, if someone calls you out for falling asleep while they were talking, you just tell them that you were praying for them to be more interesting. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.